waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. Ecstasy, bliss, or equanimity, what's your desire? In waking up, people experience and report ecstatic states. Often these states are associated with euphoria in which feelings of pleasure, ease, and excitement are greatly expanded. Others report bliss or a feeling of total happiness. And still others report equanimity or stability of the mind in experiences of awakening. In this episode, Polly and Mike talk about the kinds and qualities of emotional states that are sought out by practitioners who want to wake up. What are the takeaways from these different states? What are you looking for emotionally in your awakenings? Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. Uh, what are you looking for emotionally in your awakenings? Oneness, bliss, uh, connectedness, a feeling you, of flow. Would you say that that you're sort of seeking is say more towards the pleasure euphoric flow side i know because you've told me i believe that you've done ecstatic dance and that you've done various kinds of ecstatic uh, religious experiences i i don't know but would like to hear if you've done ecstasy if you've done mdma and if you've done it in a club scene or or you know more in a controlled scene so so how about this sort of seeking these pleasurable sort of flowing states of pleasure ecstasy what's that been like for you 
In terms of using psychedelics, um, I set a different intention, usually depending on what's going on in my life, what I'm looking for, whether it's an experience that's wordless, timeless, beyond space-time, oneness, connectedness, or sometimes it's exploring various states of consciousness. Sometimes it is just to have fun and to feel good. You had asked me if I had ever done MDMA. MDMA, even though it's, it's considered a psychedelic, is really more of what I would describe or the term would be an empathogen. I've, I've done MDMA three different times. And the first time actually was uh, listening to music at a live performance and dancing ecstatically for hours. As a matter of fact, it was the first time I was ever introduced to the band Wookie Foot. Yeah. And I uh, took MDMA before they went on and wound up dancing in the center of the dance floor during the entire show. And at one point I opened my eyes and the lead singer, Mark, had gotten off the stage and was three inches from my face. And when I opened my eyes, he had this incredible, loving, knowing smile on his face. And uh, so I think he saw me from the stage and sought me out. So would you say that you are by nature empathic or by nature, by your own mic nature, not so empathic? I know I would say as a survival mechanism, I've been empathic most of my life. I think, you know, that comes from childhood trauma and having a constant vigilance of testing the emotional air of other people. When you test it, what are you testing for though? Because that doesn't immediately lead to empathy. No, what I, all right, by testing, what I mean is I, for whatever reason, even from an early age, have tried to put myself in other people's shoes or to use your metaphor to walk and try to see the world from their snow globe mm -hmm. to make sense of their motivation to try to get into their umwelt or how they feel mm -hmm. in the center of their personal experience to understand where they're coming from. So do you think that taking a, a drug like MDMA or any of, I guess, the entheogens, the ones that put you into the mind of God, so to speak, that those, that those substances enhance your natural desire to experience somebody else in their experience? Or do you think they can let's say, create that desire. You could only speak, of course, from your own experience, but I've always wondered because I haven't taken these kinds of drugs I, and, and I have, I'm not saying that in any way that is, let's say, critical or snooty or whatever. It's just that I haven't. <laughs> and so I always wonder, do they enhance empathy in people that are already empathic or do they create empathy in people who are guarded against feeling other people's feelings, people who are naturally self-protective, you know? So I guess what I'm wondering is what you would say from your experiences, does it enhance something or does it break through something that's, you know, been guarded? Great questions. I mean, in my case, I think for one, I'm naturally predisposed to be self-reflective. So what I've noticed in my own experience especially only coming back to psychedelics when I was over 50. As an older person coming back, my I would say my experience of it is 
in the dissolution of hangups and habitual ways of relating. And it's almost as if the layers of an onion are peeled back. And I experienced at the core of myself, pure love. And not only did I experience a sense of love and oneness, but I also was able to feel and see in people, if I was in a setting with other people, that within them as well. So at, in my experience, there is a heart opening aspect or potentially a heart opening aspect that psychedelics can activate. So much though is truly dependent on your mindset, what you bring to the experience, your intention, your trauma, your life experience, and then the setting, whether it's a social occasion, and hopefully these are part of your preparation is having your set and setting align with whatever the intention is. So if it's deeper connection to feel more empathetic, if that's part of your, even if that isn't part of your intention, psychedelics, especially MDMA specifically, seem to function at that level of opening up this sense of love that we have that may be buried beneath words, thoughts, habits, trauma. There can be euphoria, and there's definitely an increased, one of the terms would, uh, again, would be empathogen. So it does increase empathy. So that empathy, though, the way that you're expressing it in words, is let's say the positive side of human emotions because you know something like fear is contagious something like rage is contagious you could say that's through empathy that we feel someone else's fear or rage and we we take it on when i hear people talk about ecstasy or mdma or or let's just say the the more entheogen type of psychedelic I always hear only about positive emotions. And so I do wonder that could be, as you said, the motivation of the experiencer. The experiencer wants to open in his heart or open her heart or open their heart. And then they want to feel this love in others. And so they do. But I know that in my experience of people in psychotherapy, couples particularly, when I'm empathic with their feelings, it's a range of feelings. You know, it's certainly not just love. I mean, you could say that driving everything underneath all of those self-conscious feelings or those feelings of anxiety and uh, apprehension and alienation underneath of all that maybe is something that's unifying. It's just been curious and interesting to me that the emotions that get associated with the empathogens or the entheogens are usually described only as positive emotions. Well, that that is likely very true for MDMA specifically. For example, I mean, so now that it's been demonstrated to to help in a therapeutic setting with PTSD and social anxiety. One of the other aspects of MDMA, you're going, you may experience that outside of a therapeutic setting. I think this is why it was a very popular club drug at one time and why it is still popular. It, it also has dimensions where it breaks down social barriers. 
inhibitions, I would feel better able to express my thoughts and feelings if I was on MDMA, feel more connected to people, to friends, feel more intimate. However, when we get into some of the other psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD or DMT, what you're describing are the negative emotions. They certainly arise. Those are called difficult or challenging experiences. Frequently, people don't want to share those because they don't feel safe sharing it because it's revealing an aspect of their psyche. And there are not many safe spaces, I think, where people feel comfortable sharing those very difficult experiences. This is one of the purposes of having an integration circle of people who, in an intimate setting with appropriate guidelines for not sharing outside the circle, people do share these experiences so we can learn from each other and understand maybe some aspect of ourself that comes up in a difficult trip. So yes, there are experiences of negative emotions, most definitely. And again, depending on set and setting, these can be magnified as well. So, you know, when I looked up the word ecstasy, ecstasis, one thing that I saw that is from some of the more ancient traditional definitions, it is an experience that goes outside of your normal sensorium. And so it can be painful or it can be pleasurable. So ecstasy itself can take you into painful states or can take you into pleasurable states, but they're states that would be outside of your normal sensory awareness that, in other words, you are not stable. You're ex-stable, <laughs> you know, you're ex-stasis. You're not stasis, you're, you're, ex you're exiting that, let's say. And yet most people I think who do practice ecstatic dance, ecstatic, childbirth I've heard of, you know, ecstatic religions, generally they're seeking to get away from negative experiences, I believe. In other words, they're not seeking to have painful experiences. They're seeking to get away from painful experiences and to get into a state that you could call pleasure. So euphoria is a state where, you know, you're only in pleasure and you are ecstatic, but you're ecstatic in a pleasurable, expansive way so that the contractive emotions are in the background, even pain. So, you know, I kind of wonder about mm, ecstatic experiences as in some ways a desire to get away from um, being in human relationships, getting away from human culture, and to some extent, perhaps even getting away from the pain of one's body. So I, I wonder what comments you have about that. So I also looked up stasis and ecstasis. So ecstasy is a sense, in a sense, it's a being out of balance and one of at least uh, Merriam-Webster's def definitions is a state of static balance or equilibrium. So from my personal point of view, seeking a state of perceptual change that breaks out of 
my habitual way of relating and experiencing myself in the world is one potential, which I would say is more of an approach. And I heard you discuss some aspects of when we try to escape from reality, perhaps into something more pleasurable and avoidance. On another level too, I would say that uh, part of it is seeking to escape from a verbal prison we live in, the, the constant monologue, if we're aware of it, if we're not able to quiet our minds, if we're activated. Also, another aspect of that ecstatic state is a seeming uh, more direct experience or perception of reality at a deeper level. To get out of that default mode ego kind of paradigm. Yes, yes. And it's there's a wordlessness, timelessness. It's as if you've escaped space-time, or at least the constraints, the perceived constraints of, of space-time dissolve. And there may be an aspect to it where we're trying to get back what we lost during socialization as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you know, there's, there's certainly, uh, in my view, a lot of research and evidence that the human infant is not separated out from the world around it. So that this sense of ego default mode, what we call self or me is created, you know, between 18 months and two years. Prior to that, the human infant is more like other mammals that experience a kind of flow back and forth between what we could call embodied experience and the experience of a so-called world out there that there's a flow between those two because everything really is mind. It's always first person, whether you're experiencing your so-called body or your so-called mind or your so-called tree or your so-called chair or the statistics or the Hubble telescope, it's always first person. And so, you know, that infant experiencing that doesn't have, this is my body, you know, Here's my personality. These are, these are the things I identify with. So, you know, it's possible, it's possible, I think, that some of the psychedelics do release us into the kind of state of being that we had in infancy, you know, but we're having it now in an adult setting with other adults, if that's going on, you know. And so in a sense, it is contained. It's not as though we're falling back into an infantile state that's uncontained and might seem terrifying, you know, if you're doing that alone. So there, there is there is evidence that these these early non-self states, while they have lots of pain and fear and negative emotions in them, also have a lot of pleasure and boundarylessness and so on as well. I think that probably, you know, all humans have had the taste for ecstasy, the taste of euphoria because of that early time. And it's, you know, in the Genesis story, it's the Garden of Eden, you know, before, before Adam and Eve tasted the fruit of knowledge, which is like the fruit of self-consciousness, you know, and then you go on to be able to have certain kinds of insights that God can have, but you no longer feel at ease. You feel now inside of a body and afraid. So it seems like some of what drops away, again, I'm not speaking from my own experience, I'm speaking really from reading about others, 
what drops away in you know ecstatic dance in euphoric interventions or you know in, when people are doing ecstatic dance or doing euphoric activities that sense of body drops away that sense that i'm in here and there's something else out there and then you said additionally comes a feeling of i i can feel that i am love and that i feel you are love also so part of what i hear you describing we're going back to that non-dual state and in that non-dual state, just as, you know, we also bring this cultural context to what we're discussing about, for example, how we come into being from infancy. And Stan Groff, who did LSD psychotherapy before it was illegal, has mapped out what he called basic perinatal matrices. I guess culturally, there's this reference to being in the womb as uterine bliss, that it's all positive, but that is not the case. Birth is dangerous. It is life-threatening both to the child and the mother at times. It can be, whether you get wrapped in an umbilical cord or a breech birth or types of pregnancies you've mentioned. Or even so, without that, it's, honestly, it's uh, life-threatening to both beings because of the amount of physical exertion and the squeezing, the tightness for everybody. It's a huge amount of exertion. And I, I think being in the womb, probably, you know, I, I do think that when men imagine it, they imagine it more positively than when women do, because we've, you know, when I was carrying my babies, they were at times really tightly in there and I could feel how tight it was for them. Also, you know, um, all of my digestive sounds and activities were going around, going on around them. You know, they're, they're, all of the things that were happening in my nervous system were happening for them. I mean, in fact, I do recall being at a, you know, a heavy rock concert about six months pregnant with my first child and all of the moving and kicking and flipping, I thought must be very unpleasant for this person to be hearing this. You know, it was not, it did not feel like an easy time for the baby. But, you know, again, I think there's a tendency to idealize the infancy thing, which I think is a very big mix of stuff. However, I do think the body is not the limit there. It's the break, it's, there's no, there's no subject object split. I'm sure some of the ecstasy, some of the sense of being absolutely okay is connected to that early time when we didn't, you know, when we when we felt really okay, it felt really okay because there wasn't anyone worried about the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, it may have felt really okay, and there were times when it felt really not okay and not okay. safe too. That's right. right. And and so to bring it back maybe to to the why we we seek this experience of wanting some kind of a perceptual shift. You know, we've discussed the desire for pleasure. I've brought up wanting to experience something different, like various altered states of consciousness, whether it's a, an expanded awareness, heightened sensory awareness. On some psychedelics like ayahuasca, there are anecdotal reports of ESP or mind reading without actually using language at all. Um, in fact, on DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, 
there is a psychedelic comedian named Sean Moss who has a short video on YouTube where he describes an experience of meeting an entity that was jealous of his real life girlfriend and another friend independent of his smoked DMT without having heard the story and reported to him uh, that, yeah, there's this woman who's really jealous. So, you know, just wanting to experience things that are beyond consensus reality is part of, I think, seeking ecstatic state, whether it's through religion, drugs, dance, all the various methods we have, meditating, fasting, extreme sports. So part may be also related to escape and getting relief. Um, so there's, there's one thing that I, I, uh, I think is important to mention in the mix of the seeking of ecstatic states, which is the falling into ecstatic states. Again, we've talked about seeking versus falling into uh, a lot of times uh, so far in these episodes. So the Buddha, as a, a kid of about seven, he's supposedly sitting under a tree, watching a farmer dig up the soil and noticing how the insects are all killed as the farmer is digging up the soil to plant the garden. But as the Buddha is watching this, he notices that his mind goes into a state that is so blissful. It is completely pleasurable, but not in the way of oh, a sensual pleasure. It's like a mental stability that is inherently pleasant. And he, he simply notices that the concentration that he's using to watch this farmer has activated something that happens to him that's very pleasant. So later, much later in his life, when he does learn about meditation and learns how to concentrate his mind when he's also relaxed, he immediately recognizes this was the state of mind he had when he was a child that just happened to him. He fell into it. And this state of mind is generally called equanimity. And it's really quite different from bliss, even though it has a blissful aspect to it. Well, I'm not going to say it's different from bliss. It's different from euphoria. Equanimity basically is a complete stabilizing of your awareness. And in that stabilization, you join the vast awareness that is the absolute. You know, that's God, this vast awareness of everything all at once, all together. You can begin to get a taste of it when you fall into equanimity or you cultivate equanimity. So equanimity is that concentration where you're focusing the mind and at the same time, you're totally relaxed in your body. You're not holding back anything so that you can encounter pain, you can encounter rage, you can encounter mm, you know, being blown around by the wind and it's all okay. There is nothing that's not okay. And that can lead to bliss. That can lead to complete in, immovable okayness. And, you know, on the Buddhist path, the Buddha warned against this, and so do other teachers warn against it. Because once you can cultivate this kind of stability and okayness, 
Well, of course you want to do that all the time because it makes everything okay. However, it will become a detour if you become attached to it. Because as soon as you become attached to it, then you're removing yourself from, let's say the expansion and contraction of space-time, which is really what you are. You are, I am, space-time. And the expansion and contraction, if we remove ourselves from it too much, then we're just preserving ourselves again. We're just, we're just hiding out. We're not joining in to the suffering of the world and working with it. But that's, that state of equanimity is another one of the states that is desired in awakening, you know, because it's blissful. And when you either fall into it by accident, like the Buddha did, you could fall into it through flow experience. Csikszentmihalyi, you know, the, the, the guy that talks about, you know, being sort of between anxiety and boredom is this optimal experience. And that's this equanimity. And so rock climbing, chess playing, all different kinds of things that require concentration, art, you know, painting, creating, people fall into this state of equanimity. And they want to stay in there because it's, it's blissful, time passes, you don't notice it, etc. But it's another one of the states that's connected to awakening that's really quite different from euphoria or ecstasy. But similar, it can become similar because it's pleasurable, it can become a desire to go there, to be in it, that you become attached to. And then that is an obstacle in the on the path to a larger awakening, which is the joining in with all of the difficulties of the world in order to bring compassion and healing and resilience. You can't stop even at equanimity and bliss, you know, and make it your own. <laughs> so we're back to one of these slippery topics of consciousness again, that uh, dividing line maybe between the approach and the avoid, escape, escaping from reality or seeking to transcend and go beyond it to relieve the suffering that we may experience in our everyday reality if we don't maybe feel seen or heard to move into that ecstatic state of oneness and love. And yeah, the, so the contrast is you use the term euphoria, which is, it's an overwhelming state, which is why it can be very easy to chase euphoria and get hooked on any of these emotional states, ecstasy, bliss, oneness, as you said, about equanimity. You can't live your life and be entirely removed as well, or let me a different way, unmoved by life. Right. So at a very deep level, though, from what I've been learning from you about equanimity is how it relates to whether or not you were talking about pain or pleasure, it also relates to pleasant and unpleasant emotions as well. The image that came to mind is the image of one of those still mountain lakes that reflects the sky perfectly without ripples. It never holds on to it. It only reflects what passes by. And that's 
kind of a way of thinking or a way that I think about visually try to imagine that ecstatic state or the state of equanimity where there is a certain stability in the way I perceive my reality. It's as if I'm witnessing the ups and downs, the, the way the tides come in and out of my personal experiences, my emotional life, whether at times I feel connected or anxious or disconnected. So I think with equanimity, by cultivating this state, I believe, at least for me, it's, it's helped me to become a better observer of what arises emotionally within me. And I think better able to accept what arises as opposed to fighting it, pushing it away, avoiding it, suppressing it. So you're making so many good points. I don't want to lose the thing about the mirror and the, and the mountain lake, because yes, that in that state of mind, you are the witness and you can witness and you can witness and experience so many things without freaking out, without contracting. You, you're just, you're really kind of an open mirror. And that openness is sort of like the air, like it doesn't get, it can't get knocked down. But again, if you seek that for yourself, you know, if you are, let's say, wanting just that, then of course, on a meditative path, as you happen onto these states, um, you're just amazed that they even exist. And of course you want them, you know, you want to get back to that. You don't really like all of the painful sitting there with your thoughts, you know, driving you into the ground and so on. The thing about equanimity is that it does, it's an incredible tool. It allows, if you can cultivate, if you stabilize your mind in it, it allows you to be forever courageous because you can go into anything and you're certain that you're not going to be just sort of nailed down into something that you won't be able to tolerate. So it's sort of infinite tolerance. Well, so what's the downside of it? <laughs> you know, like, why wouldn't you just want that all the time? Well, you can't exist in that state as a human being. You know, you can, you cannot be a rock. You cannot be the, the, the mountain pond. You know, you can be like that sometimes, but you can't be that. And so in a certain way, if you want it for yourself, it becomes another escape. You know, again, you're an escape artist. You're going to go after these things that allow you to get away from your fellow humans, that allow you to um, remain, you know, sort of looking like the uh, stable Buddha at the party or whatever. And that doesn't work. You know, you, you, can't, you can't do that and be the human. One of the wonderful things about the big change in Buddhism from early Indian Buddhism, when awakening really was there, the main goal was to get out of space-time. And then later with the development of the second sort of turning of Buddhism in India, uh, Mahayana Buddhism, is to bring all of this, all of this, this awakening and this love and so on to the suffering of the beings that you are with in space-time. You know, that your job is to get with them and, and help and notice what's going on. Sort of equanimity becomes a tool and it's, it's no longer just what is driving you do more and more waking up. It, it seems again that 
there's a there may be a danger i don't know in taking various kinds of substances because it could it could be that that you know you continue to take the substances but you never you never bring back the rewards to your fellow beings or you know, to any other beings uh, except the ones that might be at the party with you. So you know, it seems like there's that's that that sort of attachment to euphoria, ecstasy, expansive states of mind, or even to equanimity is a problem. So I, I would like to share a quote I found that I think is related to what you just described. I'm not really sure how to pronounce the name of the author that it's attributed to. He was a Sufi, uh, Yaya bin Muadal Razi. This is on Ram Dass's website about this very issue. And the quote is, paradise is the prison of the sage as the world is the prisoner of the believer. And I do think that a potential pitfall is mistaking the end or the goal for the journey, which is part of what I, I hear you describing there, that sometimes there's a grasping for this thing to become a state as opposed to something you visit and try to bring back. So I see overlap with intention and integration in psychedelics, which we spoke about what and how can you bring this back in your everyday life. Part of that, I would hope, or at least for me, is to try to practice equanimity and loving kindness and to try to embody that in my interactions with other and try to be mindful of it, especially when I can feel myself reacting, if I'm cultivating this witness consciousness and I can feel these emotions rise, I can hear parts of my own narrative that get activated. And I can feel that I may behave very automatically and robot-like because there are all these connections and associations that I'm walking around with from a lifetime of being on the planet and interacting with people, having different experiences. And I don't think, obviously, I couldn't have all of this in my conscious awareness. I would not be able to walk through life. You know, it's another another thought about this is, you know, once you've seen, once you've seen God, you still have to come back and earn a living and go to work in a mean, loveless society. Well, and so the mean loveless is where I would depart. I think your eyes and your ears are the eyes and ears you're using. So if you hear it as mean, or you hear it as loveless, there's something that you're doing also to bring that meaning to that moment. You know, again, when we talk about, you know, subjectivity, first person, the narrative that we use is what we're assigning to the experience. I, I do feel as I move on this path more and more that I was, thinking about this this morning actually like if i could say to somebody very very simply you know what's the simplest thing you could do to wake up and i know when i did my ted talk i one of the things i said is just take the mirrors down in your house for two days just be without a mirror do not look at yourself in a mirror do not look at yourself in any kind of glass in other words give it two days it will really change the way you feel. But what I was thinking about this morning was a little different because it relates to what you're saying. Uh, if, I, if I wanted to say what, what would be the quick and easy way to 
allow your mind the greatest amount of equanimity with all circumstances, no matter who's driving on the road with you, who's sleeping in the bed with you, who's chewing next to you, whatever. And I thought of two things. One is this first one will seem very odd, I'm sure. Clean all the surfaces, the physical surfaces in your house. Try to keep them as clean as possible so they reflect light. Because many people's physical surfaces are crowded with piles of stuff. And instead of re reflecting the light, which they will do naturally, they're, they're reminding you of what the mail you haven't opened, the book you haven't read, the bill you haven't paid. So there's no light coming in your home from the physical surfaces. And I mean the surfaces in your kitchen, in your bathroom, on your table, shine them up a little bit so they reflect the light. The light itself will do something to you. So that is number one, clean your surfaces. Number two, drop your mental talk. Just drop it, drop it again, drop it again, drop it again. Those two things together, when you can abide in them, the light plus the dropping of the talk, will provide so much bliss and equanimity. I'm not sure about ecstasy, but equanimity that, you know, you can go out into the world just from being in your house with the clean surfaces and spending some period of time dropping the talk. You can go out refreshed and you didn't even have to meditate. You know, you didn't have to sit still. You didn't have to, and you didn't have to take any substances and you know you were just walking around in your house and cleaning the floors or cleaning the counters and then dropping the talk so you know there are things that we do in our ordinary life like clean the surfaces that do help us but most of the time what we're doing in our ordinary lives get in our get in the way of pleasurable states you know because of the talking to ourselves and really even talking to ourselves about all the unenlightened people that are around us and talking to ourselves about how our partner or sibling has, doesn't, is not interested in us, doesn't get interested in anything we're interested in. And believe me, I do like, really a lot of that talking to myself, myself, but then I drop it and I drop it and I drop it. And it's amazingly easy to enter into at least a state of equanimity just with the light and dropping the talk. So I, I, sorry, I interjected that at a moment, but when you mentioned all the stupid and mean people, <laughs> that brought it to mind. I think the importance of equanimity in awakening is how it brings more balance into integrating these ecstatic or potentially blissful experiences which may in the short term provide something very temporary. And it's only through cultivating that equanimity that we're able to sustain this practice. And in a sense, to go with the flow a bit more, I like the idea of turning off the internal chatter. Another exercise I've tried is to banish using the word I for 24 hours which or more, which is, it's not an easy thing to do, but it certainly is a humbling experience. Certainly not easy. I mean, here again, this is a tricky thing because you're using I typically to talk to somebody else. 
And so if you don't use it, I've, I've seen people try to write me notes where they don't use it, then I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I, you know, it's if, if for example, uh, you, somebody says, well, can you come to this party? And, and you say, the time is not available instead of, I don't have time. A more creative response might be, the hermit can't leave the cave. Well, but then the other person doesn't know what you're talking about, you know, because the, because the I refers to your responsibility for your perceptions or your intentions rather than to your ego. You know, it's like the other person is the one receiving that. Where on the other hand, if you don't look at yourself in a mirror for two or three days, that's you having that experience. The other person isn't having that experience. There are these interpersonal or social aspects to our cultivation, let's say, of, of equanimity or no self. You know, I've seen I've seen people try the personal pronoun stuff, but it often is creating confusion for others uh, who are around them. Th this issue of being awake and then creating uh, conditions for others that are not particularly empathic to the others, you know, can be one of the issues. I mean, we've talked about that already, but I don't want to, I don't want to rain on your parade about the pronouns, but. Yeah. I was just pointing out that it's, it's an experiment I've done from time to time over years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And I've, I experience it more in terms of not so quickly, not identifying with my ego. But it's more about my self-talk. In other words, from, you know, you're right. You can't, I can't interact with people if I'm not referring to myself. <laughs> and this, this speaks to what we've been talking around about how part of the challenge resides in language. Using these symbols, so I can be my identity, I can be my location in space-time, I can refer to many things, and our perceptions, our personal experiences are very nuanced, and we bring our own interpretation of what we believe we see, hear, and feel into language, into interpreting. So there's the cultural context. So not only, I mean, in, in much of the what we're speaking about is first person, but I think here we're butting up against how this really becomes intersubjective and even affects the collective as we bring equanimity and maybe loving kindness into our interactions. Now we're seeing, well, we may or may not, but I think it's more likely if we're coming from equanimity and loving kindness that I will see these ripple out in my interactions just in the same way as if I look somebody in the eyes and I smile at them, much of the time the response I get is a smile. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's very good to assess it in terms of the response you get, you know, because it's either working or it's not working. You know, when I, when I wrote Love Between Equals, I said, you know, so if you're trying to express this love to your beloved, the beloved is the one that gives you the feedback. You don't say to the beloved, but I was trying to let you know there, you know, how much I liked your shirt or whatever the other person says, I felt insulted. Well, you should take that feedback. You know, it's, it's again, that's where the equanimity comes in. Can you take the feedback that your attempt to be loving didn't work? 
And of course, even the eye to eye in some cultures that doesn't work. And you know, there's, there's just a lot of variance in the way humans receive our communications and then of course the way they express. So I know we're coming to the end of this episode and I wanted to mention that we're going to be entering into new territory uh, in the next several episodes because we're gonna be talking about some of those differences in the way adults function with each other that are non-random differences that have to do with different stages, paradigms of development for adults, the, the regularity of different windows that we see our reality through. You know, are you primarily an all or nothing person? Are you primarily a complex, seeing it from many different views person? Are you primarily taking responsibility for yourself? Do you primarily protect yourself from responsibility? We're gonna be looking at a map of adult development that will help us, I think, see that even the most enlightened person has a window that they're seeing the results through and expressing them through. Well, that's not a really good way to say it, but I don't know if you wanna say anything about that transition and, we're kind of wrapping up our investigation so far of waking up and we're going to get into growing up. If it's all right with you, I would just like to go back for a moment about why I think cultivating equanimity is really key to what we're talking about. Of course it's all right with me. <laughs> yes. You know, as, as, as individuals, we can cultivate a balanced and grounded approach to these awakening experiences that can bring about or foster uh, emotional stability, greater or expanded perspective, clarity, and inner peace. And it supports a harmonious integration of awakening insights into everyday life. I think these are some of the keys that help us navigate the challenges and the joys of being human with greater wisdom and greater presence. Mm, mm, that's very nice. I like the way you've said that. And it also emphasizes that maybe equanimity is the state of mind that in the end predominates over the euphoria ecstasy, you know, because it's what we need for the living of life not the escaping from life, right? This has been a great conversation. In a way, I'm really sad to be leaving our conversations about waking up and entering into conversations that are going to be in some ways, can, they can seem more technical about growing up and what it means to develop as an adult. But I think our point in doing the podcast is to put together some, let's say, practices, experiences, research, uh, that haven't been put together before. And we will take that journey even further as we bring guests on who are the really sort of generators of diverse points of view on what it means to wake up, but also to grow up and be an adult in a way that shows the wisdom through your actions, not through how you feel about yourself. 
or what you say about yourself. And uh, I look forward to our ongoing development. Thank you, Polly. And as they say, I guess, works and acts. That's how it will be known. Uh, I also would invite you to share this episode with friends, family, or anyone curious about the complexities of the human mind and the awakening journey. Stay connected with us on social media. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. Session one begins November 30th. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session one is November 30th to December 3rd. Session two will be February 1st through 4th. And session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com. And from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training or anything in the podcast, uh, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com, where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation, where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.